Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're kicking off our end-of-year fundraising drive with a special discount offer from our partner, Heritage Foods USA, an online farm-to-table butcher shop specializing in heritage breed antibiotic-free meats. Donate to Heritage Radio Network before Sunday, December 4th at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate, and we'll send you an exclusive discount code for 10% off all Heritage Foods products. Help ensure another year of great food radio, get 10% off delicious and sustainably produced meat, and support small family farms all in one shot. How's that for a holiday miracle? Head to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate by Sunday, December 4th to make your contribution. Today's program has been brought to you by Calavita. Think outside the bottle with Calavita, America's trusted family brand, makers of extra virgin olive oil and fine Italian food products. Calavita.com. Today's program has been brought to you by Wines of Bordeaux. Visit their website at Bordeaux.com. I'm Greg Blaze, host of Cutting the Curd. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Michael Mecca here. Welcome to this post-Thanksgiving episode of Food Talk. Yep, missed you all last week. Um, a lot going on today. It's a slightly shorter show. We had a guest, last-minute guest, that had travel troubles and couldn't make it into New York. Uh, it happens. So we're going to go with one guest today. We have a 30, 35-minute show. Um, and that guest is going to be Abe Conlon. He, is, he will be with us in a second live from uh, Chicago by phone to cover the book, the Adventures of Fat Rice Recipes from the Chicago Restaurant Inspired by Macau. Um, we'll be with him in just just a second. We have him on the line. I uh, just want to give a quick shout-out. We had a great <clears throat> dinner earlier this week with Frank Cornelius, and if you don't know, we talk about wine a lot on the show. He's the great um, winemaker on Mount Etna. had a great story. I got to sit down at a dinner table with him for about, oh, I guess, two and a half, three hours on um, – Tuesday night and just talk about what he does, uh, his whole backstory. If you don't know Cornelison's wines, Contadino's is entry-level field blend, um, light red wine. They're great. I mean, he's been farming bio on Aetna for, uh, since the late 90s. It's just like basically him and a donkey. Well, that's how it used to be. Now it's a little bit bigger. Zero SO2 in the wines. Uh, they're incredible wines. It was really fun to, to be able to sit down across the table from him and talk about his backstory about the evolution of natural winemaking and bio winemaking within his own head. Uh, he talks about really, you know, sort of why he got into it and how it, he honestly kind of didn't know what he was doing. So he started putting out the wines after 2005, but he, he's, he's a great vineyard. I love the guy. Uh, so shout out to him. We're, we're trying to get him on the show, but he had to be in Boston today. Um, and for all you New Yorkers, if uh, you know one of the great restaurants that just opened recently, Keith McNally, who's brought us Pastis and Baltazar and Lucky Strike and um, I, pretty much all the greatest hits you can think of in New York in the world of sort of redoing the Parisian Bistro Fair, um, opened a new restaurant downtown 
that's just amazing. It's called Augustine. It's really, really amazing. My first visit there last night, the two chefs who were in charge of the chefs who run all of his other restaurants, which again are Balthazar, Cherche Midi, a Pastis, Lucky Strike, um, Schiller's in my neighborhood. And this, but this Augustine's really special. They, they built it from scratch. It looks like it's been there, like all of his restaurants. looks like it's been there a hundred years. Uh, it's just a beautiful dining room. Uh, Shane McBride and Chino are the two chefs. They run all the kitchens and all of his other restaurants. They were both in the kitchen last night. It's just spot-on classic French food in an amazing room. Uh, you know, this guy has the ability to just <clears throat> make instant hits. So he's got another one. If you haven't had a chance to get down to Augustine, do before they get their two or three-star review from the Times, and you'll never get in. Like all McNally, he also has Minetta Tavern, by the way. You know, another great, 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 great kitchen. So um, congratulations to Brian McNally, to the team of Shane and Chino for a great, great open and a great restaurant. Um, uh, another instant classic. Anyway, let me introduce uh, my guest. We have him on the phone. Abe, are you there? Hi, yes, I'm here. Hey, man. So, great book. I love it. I, and I have to tell you, in the interest of full disclosure, I really, I don't get to Chicago much. I wasn't aware of the restaurant. I get books sent to me all the time, and I kind of scratch my head. This looked totally different, because it's got these great sort of graphics, um, you know, it's just a great style layout. But then your story's so cool. So, uh, let's just assume, you know, doing radio is tough sometimes, because there's probably a percentage of my listeners who are, like, shaking their heads, like, how do you not know these guys? Well, let's, I'm talking to the other 90 that might not know who you are, that, uh, you know, aren't part of that world so you you grew up in lowell mass right yes that's correct so there's a big portuguese influence up there yeah i mean my my family is portuguese there's a lot of portuguese people kind of all in massachusetts established Um, like the fishing villages population but Yep. You know, Fall River definitely has the biggest kind of Portuguese population mass. Right. And I know that so much of the fishing that takes place out of New Bedford and Gloucester, um, especially back in the old days, I'm sure, to today, were uh, Portuguese families that have been there for years. Yes, absolutely. So tell me about, like, the evolution. I mean, this book's great. It's kind of like right in the beginning, we talk about your, this trip. I mean, the beginning, I guess the prologue of the books, you're in Macau, it's 2011. Um, you know, you've been to St. Paul's Church, you're walking down the street, there's these Portuguese egg tarts, which I, I've been to Portugal a bunch of times, so I'm familiar with Portuguese food. Um, but to talk about the, like, what were you guys doing? You were doing, like, a pop-up restaurant in Chicago? You were thinking about, how did this thing come together? Because in the beginning, you just had this great trip, and you have these, like, aha moments where you're kind of, you know, meeting people along the way, and we'll get to that. But what was the deal? You were doing, in 2011, where were you in terms of, like, the restaurant world? You were just doing pop-up somewhere? Yes. So we, we essentially, uh, Adrian, my business partner, and I, we, um, over the basically 2007 to 2000 or 2008 to 2011 we essentially ran uh pop-ups out of uh our home out of various commercial spaces that we like you know disguised as antique stores and secretly ran 40 40 people a night three nights a week out of it and uh (laughs) so we got a good following and then um we decided to take a break and we were always experimenting with different types of food different you know whether it was southeast asian food or indian food or or um or chinese food and we just really got into chinese food and said okay well uh we want to go to china let's let's do a little culinary trip to china and um and we said, okay, well, we'll go to Sichuan province, learn how to cook those kind of classic uh, techniques of Sichuan cuisine, and then we'll go to Hong Kong and kind of just hang out for a little bit. And I was like, well, if we're going to go to Hong Kong, then I'd love to go to Macau because uh, 
12 years prior, in 1999, I read uh, an article by Margaret Sheridan uh, in Sever magazine uh, titled Original Fusion. And it was, a, you know, the story was about these small, this small community uh, that has this great cuisine that's a mixture of Portuguese, Chinese, Malay, and Indian, kind of all wrapped up in one. And I was really intrigued by it because I'm Portuguese, and, and Lowell, Massachusetts, the town I grew up in, has uh, a large Southeast Asian population, so I was always into uh, Asian flavors, also a large Indian population, so I was in the Indian stores smelling spices. And, and, and my chefs, when I was young, they also started, that was kind of when they started incorporating those ingredients into, like, more French classical techniques. So I was always, like, intrigued by the idea of, of fusion, and when I found that there was a place that, uh, basically included my culture and my culinary interest. I said, I'm going to go there someday. And I kind of forgot about it um, for a number of years and then kind of revisited it here and there. I kept reading that article and trying to find as much information on Macau and Macanese cuisine that I could. Um, and then um, when Adrian and I started doing these pop-ups, uh, you know, it was it, it, we got to experiment with, with some of these dishes and we uh, finally got a chance to go there and actually meet some of the people that were in the original uh, magazine article that I read. So one of, them, one of them was this woman, Donna Aida de, 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 de Jesus? Yeah, Donna Aida de Jesus, yep, yep. So that was like when you, you were wandering around trying to find this. This is like, you know, you're, you don't have cell phone coordinates. You're trying to read these maps, and the languages are kind of confusing, and you finally stumble upon this woman who you've been kind of dreaming about. And it's, it's this great story. I mean, you eat there, you're talking to her, the whole thing's like an epiphany, and then she gives you this book as like the bon bagage to take home. Exactly. Yeah, and she gave us the, the book by Cecilia George, right. uh, a journey, uh, a journey across generations, um, and it had really all of the dishes that I had been kind of reading about that you don't find on the streets of Macau or in the in the restaurants in Macau, uh, like the egg tarts or the pork chop sandwich. I mean, this had things like uh, uh, minchi and balichang tamarindu, which is like a with like a pork uh, cooked with tamarind and shrimp paste, and some really really great uh, recipes and dishes that we. Uh, kind of absorbed and really started testing these things out. And it wasn't really even until about two months before we opened the restaurant that we actually had a name or knew that we were going to do, um, you know, food inspired by Macau and Macanese cuisine and kind of global Portuguese cuisine in general. Like we didn't really know that. And then, but Macau happened to basically kind of tie all of our interests together and kind of give us a really big box to work within and um so yeah it was it was very the whole thing was very serendipitous but uh now it's definitely the mission and the goal of fat rice to um talk about these recipes present these recipes you know and and with minimal interpretation so you and I've never met, but I'm sure we have friends in common. And so as I'm as I'm reading the book and I'm going through the pages, I'm thinking like when I first met Zach Palaccio when he opened uh, Fatty Crab here in the city, right? Mm-hmm. He he was living with his wife in Malaysia. His wife said he was traveling around. He went to the French Culinary Institute, was going to open a bistro. And his wife at that time, uh, Anna Yovinshichevich, said, you know, Zach, why don't, you know, you know this. No one's doing melee food in New York. And, you know, he really bored down and sort of was the guy to do it. And I'm thinking, you know, Andy Ricker with Pock Pock and uh, to some extent Danny Bowen with, with Mission, right? This, 
These are not, mm-hmm. uh, Danny's an adopted Korean kid from the Midwest that just kind of decides he's going to go after that Mala Sichuan thing and like nails it. Right. That's mm-hmm. kind of like the path you guys were on, because this wasn't exactly a, a culinary vocabulary you were familiar with, but yet you were enamored by it. Yes, I mean I was starting to understand it from my my own uh, Portuguese background, and I did I did some traveling in Brazil and Portugal, so kind of I you know I I had a I had a toe in it for sure, but um, not until we met Donna Ida, until we uh, really got that uh, the Cecilia George book, did we really fully begin to start understanding it. Yeah, and even still now we're I'm still I'm still trying to understand. I'm no, I'm sure you, know? you just opened the door and now you know there's like a million other doors to open now that you're like in the house kind of thing. It's it's I, I went to exactly. the Philippines for the first time last year, uh, and I was really curious about Philippine cuisine because it's very it's it's similar in the sense that you know um, you were talking about a city in a specific region that doesn't move, and the Philippines are really you know seven thousand islands. It's an archipelago, so there's lots of cuisines and lots of different things. But through it all, you see Chinese influence. Portuguese influence, Indian, Malay, and and in, in the case of where you guys are, it's you know African influence as well. So it's 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 it, there's that commonality of I think Philippine and Macau cuisine that you have this sort of all of this fusion because that was kind of where and I. You know, a lot of it's the Portuguese because they were such great sailors. So the Portuguese ended up everywhere, right? The Portuguese were the only people allowed to dock in Japan when Japan said nobody can come here for a hundred and some years. So the Portuguese had sort of gateways everywhere. But um, it's that it's that great story of like you know cultural appropriation of cuisines and and the cross pollination of cuisines. Yeah, no, definitely, and, and like that's the the whole thing. It's it's been built off of, and it's beautiful to kind of see and to start at Macau and then kind of look back and see how many of these dishes were formed. What were they? What was this dish when it was in Malaysia? Or what was this dish when it was in Goa? And what was the dish like when it, or what was it like before it got to Japan? Or, you know, and, and this is kind of the path that I'm on now is really trying to understand all these things and then kind of, and also present new iterations of familiar uh, or similar dishes throughout. You know, I think in the book, now the book was probably two and a half years, the first two and a half to three years of the restaurant and main, and mainly focuses on um, Macau. It's about 90% Macau, 5% of um, my own and Adrian's family recipes, and then 5% of the Eurasian community in in Malaysia. And so now the restaurant is kind of shifting in that now we're exploring uh, these these other parts that are similar to Macau. Macau will always be there and always be the inspiration, and we will always bring back and, and do classic Macanese dishes, but there's other uh, interesting uh, combinations of cultures that are essentially they have they have great dishes to explore as well. So talk about the name of the book. You have this thing in the beginning of the book, somewhere in the beginning, in the, early on, where you're, you know, you're, you're getting ready to open this restaurant and you have no idea what you're going to call it. And it, it might have right. been this, it might have been that, it might have been this other thing. You know, there's like 15 or 20 different things floating around. How did it come to be fat rice and what is fat rice and why? Okay, well, it was a really interesting um, that was a tough time. That was a dark time for me. Like, <laughs> it was bad. I was, you know, every, every corner I turned, like somebody, you hope oh, that name exists. Or somebody just opened a restaurant with that name. Or, you know, it, it was it was crazy. But um, finally, uh, we just, I decided 
because it, it was these books. It was it was the Cecilia George book that yep. Donna Ida gave us, and then we also got other um, books as well. And and just flipping through the books, we knew we wanted to have a big dish. We knew we wanted to have like a signature dish. We wanted it to be uh, hearty to combat the the, Chicago, the cold Chicago winters. And flipping through the books, a rose gordo, a rose gordo, and in parentheses next to it, it was fat rice, and 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 it just something just clicked in the way. We knew it needed to be simple because even if people didn't know what um, Macanese cuisine was, they didn't know uh, the, the history of, of the Portuguese travels, then it didn't matter. They, they just have a, a, a great meal at, um, you know, at a simply named restaurant. And Fat Rice really uh, did that for, for the restaurant. And, and it, the, the interesting thing is it directly speaks to the arroz gordo, which is similar to that of uh, a paella that right. includes uh, chicken and sausage and um, hard-boiled eggs and pork. It can have beef. It can have veal in it. You can have, you know. Shredded you duck, prawns, prawns chili I mean, lemons. Yeah. out of control. Yep. And it, it directly brings in all of the uh, elements of the places and the people that essentially built Macanese cuisine. So elements from from Iberia, elements from from Brazil and, and from India. So it really brought all these things kind of together for us. It was a dead simple name. Um, and then, but it was kind of fun. And so I wanted to, you know, not make it so because the inside is really dark and it's like loud and you cast this big, you know, meat hooks holding up the walks and the live fire and everything. So it's pretty, you know, it looks pretty serious. And I was like, I really want to have some kind of fun inject in here, little pops of color and everything. And um, I started, I found this um, font, the Fat Rice font online. And then I just, I'm a, I'm not very good at computers, but I'm a wizard at paint, you know, from the Microsoft paint application. Right. And and I just started putting the fat rice onto old comic book covers, and I like came across the Adventures of Tintin, and put <laughs> fat rice underneath it, and it had you know there was the dragon coming, uh, you know the blue lotus specifically, the dragons kind of coming at Tintin, and Tintin's and his dog are in the little Chinese thing, and I was like that's it, and so uh, we kind of ran with it and used that we made we mocked that up. We had our graphic designer at the time mock it up, and we put a poster on the window, and uh, it really brought a cool vibe, and um, you know, excited people. I think in a way that was that was um, really great. And yeah. so then, go ahead. No, that's right. It's, it's great. The recipe's on in the book on page sixty nine. I think it's just, it's great. It's a picture of you or a chef with the, with the with the with the black rice chef jacket logo on the back. Uh, and then this gorgeous mm-hmm. picture, of this like half consumed plate that reminded me right off the bat when you look at it like a paella. Um, and then the recipe, and as you said, you've got curried chicken, you've got clams, you've got Portuguese olives, you've got sausage. I mean, it's, there's 20 different things. And then you go to some great length also about explaining. And, and I want to get to this. We have to take a quick break in a second. But I want to get to this whole idea that's kind of germane to a lot of the book is how to handle ri- how rice is handled, um, how it's steamed, how it's cooked, um, how you make fried rice using uh, day-old rice in the refrigerator. So let's let's save the next uh, fifteen minutes for for recipes, kind of one hundred and one. Um, st- stay with me; we'll do that. We take a quick break, folks, to give a shout out to the people that make this show uh, possible and a lot of other shows here in Heritage possible. A couple of my key underwriters, and then we're going to be back with. 
Abe Conlon to talk about his restaurant and his new book. The book's The Adventures of Fat Rice. Um, and the, the, it's, it's a great book. It's a, how to make all the condiments. I mean, it's all there. So stay with us. We'll be back in about two and a half minutes with more of this right after this spot. Hey folks, Mike Halameko here. Everybody knows that great cooking really starts with great ingredients, and these days we have so many options to choose from. Well, I go back to the Colavita family brand for years, and there really is a Colavita family behind this brand. I got their story long after I started using their products. Back in the mid-80s when I was the chef at the Ritz-Carlton here in New York City, one of the things you can do as a chef is order your own food. You do the purchasing, and we switched olive oils to Colavita. Uh, when I had my own restaurant down in Cape May, New Jersey, the Globe, for years, that's all we ever poured at the table. That's all I ever cooked with. And then when I started my PBS show in 1999, I thought, you know, if I'm going to look after underwriting and funders, why don't I go after products that I, I actually use at home, that I actually cook for my family with and in my restaurant with. I've been working with them for 15 years with the PBS series and now with Heritage Radio. The Colavita family goes back generations in Italy. They make their olive oil from great sourced olives, traceable sourced olives, just south of Rome in Molise province, Abruzzi, which is where my family hails from. Since then, their families moved here, so there's Colavita is living in Rome. Colavita is living in America. It's a great, trusted family brand. It's the olive oil I use, and I recommend you try it as well. So when you think of the great wine regions of the world historically, I mean, you're, you're going to be led back to Bordeaux, Burgundy, Champagne, okay, maybe Piedmont, Italy, too. And as a chef growing up, boy, if you were working in great restaurants in the 70s and 80s, they were mostly all French, and we grew up drinking Bordeaux and Burgundy and Champagne with impunity. Well, fast forward to today, and I just, just got back from the 2015 Bordeaux harvest. We were there for a week with a bunch of sommeliers. It was so much fun, and I'll tell you. This isn't your grandfather's Bordeaux. There's a whole new generation of young vignerons working with this great terroir that they've lived on, this soil that they know that they've grown up with, and the great varietals that we all know and love, Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, Cab Franc, Petit Verdot, Malbec. You know, this, this style of Bordeaux now that's younger, that's fresher, that's meant to be consumed now and not cellared, because honestly, which of us has a cellar? And who wants to buy a bottle of wine and wait 10 years? So... The Bordeaux whites are amazing. Uh, you know, Sauvignon Blanc and Semillon, like, hello, two grapes that we know. The reds tell all sorts of different stories from the left bank style that are a little more Cabernet Sauvignon driven, a little more structured right bank, a little more Merlot, a little easier, um, a little more upfront friendly. But if you haven't thought about drinking Bordeaux wine, give it another shot. For 15 to $35 in that price range, which is my price range, there's tremendous value in there. So... If you're walking past a Bordeaux wild, stop, grab a great bottle. These are some of the most food-friendly wines on planet Earth. Hey, welcome back. Uh, Michael Michael here, Food Talks, the show. Abe Conlon is my guest via phone. He's one of uh, three authors and one of the proprietors of a restaurant called Fat Rice. Um, the Adventures of Fat Rice is the name of the book. It just came out about, the, about their restaurant and about the cuisine of Macau. Um, 
So uh, for, for years, I, I've lived in Manhattan, and my family's lived in Cape May, New Jersey. So I come up to New York on Monday or Tuesday, and I go home on Friday, Friday night uh, for the long weekends, if, if I can steal a long weekend. Uh, and oftentimes, my wife makes the kids – well, she does. She makes dinner when I'm not there for the kids. And I would always come home Friday, and I would find, find a container of just leftover jasmine rice because they made something, and they didn't finish the rice. And I'm like, what am I going to – as a chef, I just – I don't throw anything out. You know, It's like i got to use it for something. So I, I love fried rice. And what I found was – just anecdotally, not this was not by planning, that for me to make fried rice, the best fried rice was always using day-old rice because it's just it's, – it's kind of dried out in the refrigerator. It's kind of clumped up. But if you put it in your hand, you can break all the kernels apart. And then if you do all the vegetable saute of all, all the mise en place that's going to go in and add the rice kind of at the end, you have these wonderful individual kernels of rice tossed in lots and lots of whatever else you put in there. And you can finish with whatever kind of sauce you want. And so now I'm reading your basic fried rice. And how did you come across – was it by accident that discovery, or you saw that being done? Because that's kind of the methodology you're using here in the book. Yeah, well, I mean, I think you know, you, you, uh, you know, as I guess as a as a chef, I mean, that's you know, the analytical mind will pull that out and be like, of course, they use day old rice because what do they do with the rice afterwards? And but I think even for us, like you know, we had that issue of you know, okay, we cook the rice and then you have rice left over. So what do you do? I mean, we do a million different things with with dale rice uh, but um the puffed rice technique um is really great and that's actually pings in chinatown ping seafood in chinatown i love that guy in in um in new york is where for me that was like the best fried rice i'd had because there was everything was perfectly like individual grains just like lightly coated in oil not much garnish really in it and then just like puffed uh, little bits of rice in between, and I was like, "This is like the ultimate fried rice." And so, um, but yeah, you got to be you got to be nice to rice. You got to cook it well the day the day before, you know. And we give the recipe uh, in the book is is great, and it works great for both applications. Um, and then yeah, dry it out, and then just like you said, break it apart with your with your with your fingers, and you know, and just keep the keep the 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 toppings like you would on a pizza minimal you know because then it won't weigh down the the rice will keep it nice and fluffy yeah it's great and the, the page before that this is something like I, I could like I don't know why it works but it sort of does this idea of coconut rice and how you cooked it I remember we filmed a segment a couple of seasons ago with with uh, Mr Richter at Pak Pak here in, in Brooklyn and we were demoing cooking rice and of course you know he's talking about he's kind of in the northern part of Thailand um, and he was sourcing a specific rice he would rinse it. Then he would wrap it up in cheesecloth and then put it in a steamer container, like a bamboo kind of container over steam. And it was a very specific way of doing it. Talk about like this coconut coconut rice recipe and the importance of like handling rice correctly from the beginning to get it where you want to be at the end. Sure. Because it sounds really basic, but it isn't. One, not all rice is created equal, right? For sure. It sounds like... uh, uh, Chef Chef Ricker was making the the short grain like a sticky rice. Yep. Usually, yeah, you soak that and then you hang it and then you steam it over, a, you know, in a bamboo basket. Uh, this one, this one is a long grain rice, uh, which uh, tends to be better for uh, parboiling or cooking in a rice cooker. Uh, if there is definitely you can definitely cook it in a pot. Um, but for us, we uh, rinse the rice uh, about three times until the water is virtually clear, being really uh, gentle with the kernels. Because if you if you if you're aggressive with them, then you'll just continue to break up the kernels and release more starch. Um, so we try to keep the, the kernels nice and whole, 
and then uh, drain it off to remove any excess uh, water because then we put uh, a measured amount of water with coconut milk and a small amount of salt uh, in, in there, mix it around. And I think the key to cooking rice, you know, and that's why the rice cooker is great because you can't open it and you can't stir it and you can't move it around, <laughs> you know, so you have to be very careful with rice. And the same thing, if you did it in a pot, you can do it in a pot, you just have to not touch it, essentially bring it up to bring it up to a boil, uh, hard boil, and then put the, put the lid, uh, you know, with the lid on and leave the lid on. And then for me, I, I actually just put it right into the oven. So you have into like a 350 degree oven. So it has this ambient heat that, uh, that cooks it evenly and slow and slow enough so it can absorb the liquid uh, at the right rate. And then I think the other important thing is letting the taking the rice out or leaving it in the rice cooker to steam and fully hydrate, and uh, and then about 15, 15 to twenty minutes or so, uh, and then taking it and then fluffing it with either chopsticks or like a small wooden wooden spoon. Yeah, just, uh, right, just to get some air in, get the steam out, kind of like then. Now the cooking's over, and we're gonna let some, mm-hmm. let some air in. Um, you've got this recipe that's kind of intriguing for me. So, I, as I said, I live in Manhattan. I live in Cape May, and Cape May is usually second or third after New Bedford and Gloucester, uh, Gloucester for commercial fishing uh, fisheries. And what we we're big on scallops. We've got a lot of scallop permits. We've got a lot of ground fish, flounder, fluke permits. Uh, there's long line stuff coming in, tuna, sword. But one of the big fish Cape May gets is also fresh squid all year round. Winter squid in the winter summer squid in the summer and you've got this crazy squid rice recipe that has me intrigued talk to me about how you handle fresh squid when you get it absolutely so yeah with the crazy squid it was it was important for us you know it's it's made with uh with uh the squid ink and um you know we uh we don't so for the most part i mean that animal has a lot of flavor on it and you know if it's a minimally processed thing especially you know better if it's never been frozen um but we get the we get dirty squid and that what that means is it has it has everything in it, it that's how i get mine it's got it has, right, it's got the beak on it it's got that little plastic thing on the inside that's the only like yeah. bone or whatever that bad boy is and a lot of times mine are be filled with whatever the squid has been eating because it, it, it has not been frozen so there's lots of little fish in there too yeah, that, those are always fun to find. But it also and it also has this uh, the little purple membrane on the outside, which most people really just clean clean off. But for me, it, it really has nice flavor, and um, you know, and it added to the, to the whole thing. So essentially, uh, when I get when I get the squid, I I um, you know I be, I'm careful to not disrupt that membrane and leave that on. It's almost like the kind of uh, the the gel that you find on a, like a, outside of like a nicely cooked like octopus tentacle. You know, but on a on a smaller form. So, I I, I keep that on, and I, I challenge to pull the pull the head out, separating the head from the body. Usually, the that that what did you what did you call that little piece of plastic cartilage will <laughs> will will come out, and then um, and then I'm trim behind the head, uh, or excuse me, trim uh, in front of the eyes, and and cut off the tentacles and push out the little beak, and then all that all that can go into the uh, the trash. I mean, you can. Obviously, find the ink sack and take the scrape the uh, the ink out of the ink sack, which is actually really nice and has a lot more flavor than like you know like a kind of processed like cuttlefish ink where you can you know you can you can buy that at the at the store through your fish premier. But um, the the ink from that actual squid has much more fresh ocean flavor. Like you said, there's there might be a little bit little crabs or little fish in there. You know what I mean? And and all that 
essentially is, is great seafood flavor. I mean, I was, you know, I, I, I was trained under um, a chef and was with many French cooks there. I remember them yelling at me like, don't, don't wash the seafood. You're going to wash the flavor away. And uh, definitely, I, I, I still adhere to that. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that because I came up classical trained. And uh, yes, with, absolutely. When you're filleting fish, you, you fillet it, you scale it, you pull out the pin bones. You never want it to see water. That's like a absolute no-no. You don't rinse right. it or you know, you just descale your cutting board, whatever, whatever. But, but, but it, at the same time, all the restaurants I worked at, when we handled squid, we all did the same thing, which was basically – First step is to do is peel off that outside membrane. Then you cut the beak off. Then you pull the tentacles out. Then you just clean the inside. So you try to turn it into this beautiful white sack with the clean. And then I was in Portugal like six or seven years ago at a dock at a restaurant, and I'm watching them cook squid. It's the first time I'd seen this, and they're like leaving that sack on the, the, the like what you're talking about that sort of little grayish membrane. And I, and I, and I just I thought to myself. Why do I take that off? I bet that tastes right. great. Like, why am I removing that for the sake of making it whiter? Like, what's the what's the advantage? Right. No, it's true. I had that. I had that revelation with fava beans actually in Portugal too, where they to the center of the table these these fresh fava beans that were cooked down with chorizo and olive oil, and it, you know it's all wrinkly, and it just had so much of a better texture and better flavor than a peeled and popped baba bean, you know? Yeah, I know. It's like we go out of our way to make these things like super soigné and beautiful, and every every step of the way we're removing flavor and texture. One of the fascinating parts of the book is that, that section called Building Blocks, because again, like Zach Palaccio and like, like, and like you're, you're honing down, you're making your own, I mean, you have that recipe for that fermented uh, uh, fermented shrimp sauce where you're doing it mm-hmm. in like a bell jar, but then you're not, you're, you're using the the plastic, ga- the rubber gasket and cheesecloth because it's fermenting, so it's gonna, it's gonna, there's gonna be gases escaping. I mean, you're doing all this from scratch, and that section fascinated me. So you're you're doing all, you're making your own XO sauce, you're making all these own sauces in house in the restaurant. Yes, yeah, that was that was very important to us, um, especially kind of keeping with with some of these traditions. Uh, you're speaking specifically about the, the bali shao, which is uh, yep. fermented. Um, an aged uh, baby krill, essentially shrimp paste uh, that's flavored with uh, brandy and bay leaf and uh, chili and lemon. And this is specifically uh, a Macanese uh, condiment and the basis of many uh, dishes like tacho, which is like a, a boiled, uh, like almost like a cozido, but with uh, but it starts off with the, um, the shrimp paste. And the thing that we found in Macau is that even in Macau, not many people. There's we met two people that make this themselves, and one <laughs> that, is a restaurant, and the other one uh, is like a you know a seasoned home chef. And so even you know it's not like it's not something you can buy at the store. It's not you know even even there. So it was important for us to essentially you know work work with uh, these ladies. I mean Manuela Ferreira and um, Florida Alves, and like talk to them and see what they put in there. Some people put gin in there. Some people put lime instead of lemon. So it varies from household to household. But the method and the practice was something that we were interested in uh, kind of keeping and keeping those, keeping those traditions. Um, you know, yeah, absolutely. With the XO sauce, we take a lot of pride in our uh, XO sauce and, uh, you know, use the finest, you know, scallops and Iberico ham and, and uh, really great shrimp. So it's important for us to, you know, making our own spice blends and, and all of that because some – you can't just we want to uh translate that um you know those traditional flavors that we find in macau and Macanese homes and and bring it to 
to the restaurant to share with the guests. I think that was kind of instead of just buying your curry powder at the store, buying you know buying in some you know just like a Malaysian shrimp paste and then mixing these things into it. I mean that's actually what a lot of people in Macau do. They just buy a shrimp paste and doctor it up. And I think it was and we give instruction for that in the book because not everybody's going to want to do that <laughs> but it's important for us not everybody, not anybody's going to want to go through the whole process of, well, of making the bottle right bottle it takes three it takes know, three months by the way right three to four months to make depending on the temperature the, the ambient room temperature yeah. <laughs> yeah i know i was laughing i'm like yeah I don't, I don't, you, you know in the summer that's going to be that's, that's going to be some stinky stuff man it's going to ferment fast but I'm, I don't think why. It's worth it. Just put it in the garage. It, 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 I guarantee it'll be worth it. <laughs> yeah, no, it, and, and in that, and, and it's great. So, so fermentation, I mean, in American culture now, I, I was, my wife's Korean, so I've been eating kimchi since we met in the early 1980s. So this idea of fermented and funky has always been, uh, I'm cool with that. But I never, ever thought that Americans would latch on to this idea. And now it's like the rage. I mean, if I get another cookbook on fermented this and how good probiotics are, and you think like in the ancient times, pre-refrigeration, the Romans used to make that fish sauce called garum, which was basically like the like Vietnamese nyuk man. I mean, it was basically like little fish that you salted, you let them rot, you controlled the rotting, and then you use that for like salt and umami. Yeah, yeah, and absolutely, and I think that that is uh, it has the, the, these have been foods for hundreds and thousands of years, yep. and you know it's only been in the past one hundred years, especially in this culture that we we're, we're not eating them, and I think. You know, these are, this is where flavor comes from. This is where umami and all these, you know, the, the salty, meaty flavors that we love, they come from anchovies and from fermented shrimp and, you know, and breakdown of proteins and ham. And I think um, not only, yeah, of course, it's, you know, beneficial flavor, it, it, you know, beneficial for you, it tastes great, and it's also part of tradition and culture. And yeah. I think we need to just continue to embrace that. Yeah, there, there's um, there's another recipe in here I want to get to. Uh, have you ever met Eddie Schoenfeld in New York? He's got that Red Farm, or excuse me, Red yeah, Red Farm over yeah, on Hudson Street. Yeah, no, I have not, I have not met him, but I've been meaning to get up there. Yeah, he's great. He's really, I mean, he's been in, he's uh, Eddie Schoenfeld, Jewish guy, been in New York since forever, born and raised here. But he was like an early white guy who somehow got into the Chinese restaurant scene, like backstage in the 1970s as it was kind of taken off. And he's got this great arc of history. And a couple of years ago, I did a show on Sunset Park, Brooklyn's Chinatown. And he was my Sherpa because that wasn't far from his neighborhood. And then we went back to his home kitchen and he made a couple of dishes for me. And I remember one of the dishes was this dish with like, I, I was always fascinated with like the, in, in, like Cantonese Chinese food in New York City, they've got like, it's kind of cheesy dish, but I've always liked it that like beef with orange flavor and it's some kind of mystery meat cut of meat. You know, it's cutting like shreds and it's tender as can be and it's glazed, probably right. deep fried twice and then glazed and then it's, 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 you know, killer good if you like it. But I remember like, how do they get this? It isn't, it isn't just by using a meat pounder. How are they doing this? And he said, man, it's baking soda. And I said, what? So talk about that pork chop recipe because I think for people listening, right. this is really neat how this, this thing acts on the protein, on the, on, the, on the muscle proteins in a certain way that turns almost everything into a tender cut of meat. Yeah, no, baking soda, man. Ancient Chinese secret. That was like, <laughs> you know, I think like being, you know, being classically trained, you really only learn kind of one small window into what, you know, the, the culinary capacity of the world is. And, you know, as far as like Chinese cuisine is concerned, I mean, it is, it, it is by far the most, one of the most technical, the most technical, the most, you know, they, they cook every single 
ingredient known to man. And yeah. so there's so much knowledge there. And, um, yeah, when we had the uh, the dupapal, the pork chop bun in Macau, like, how can it be so thin? And how can it be so, how can you cook it so fast? And, and it's still the, like, even if you cook it really fast, it's still not tender. And um, I don't even know, I don't even know where I was or what I was, what I was looking for. Um, but yeah, like I, I came across a meat dish and it had baking soda in it. I was like, baking soda. And, and then like I started looking up like meat tenderizers, like in the Chinese grocer and you like kind of turn it over and it's like, <laughs> it's baking soda. And you're like, oh my God. So, but no, it, it really works uh, uh, great, especially for the pork chop because, you know, we do it in, we do it in a brine. We do the pork chops in a brine. We add a little bit of baking soda to the brine so you can really kind of control it. Um, and yeah, it, it denatures the protein in a way that doesn't tighten like uh, like vinegar would, but it almost it, it almost make, makes it expand and allowance of more moisture retention, especially because we just fry it, you know, in a in a deep fryer. After we take it out, we just put it in the deep fryer, and it it still remains juicy and and delicious and and, ten, and tender and you get all those nice little fatty bits that haven't completely rendered off. Yeah, no, I once Eddie showed me that I would just, you know, you could use like these least expensive cuts that re- would they would work no other way except this way. And then you're right, they become like you take a cut that's going to be totally dry, doesn't have any marble. If you the more heat you it's it's just going to be dry and chewy. The more you do with it, the worse it gets. And it's spongy and it's delicious and it's tender and I'm like that's that's freaking magic. We, we tried we tried it on a, on an actual just a grilled steak once. Don't try that one. <laughs> <laughs> it makes it too. You're like this steak is too tender. Stop it. Anyway, congratulations on the book. We, I, we, I could have gone on. I mean, there's these great, you know, you have photographs, you've got these graphics with, I don't know who did the graphics, maybe multiple people, but, you know, like shaping the croquettes page and the, the squid. I mean, you have all these, it's kind of like this, uh, a mashup of styles for the book, but it's super informative. And again, all the recipes are there. Like, like how, how far, to, if you want to make your own shrimp paste at home, there's a recipe for that. Everything you need is in this book. And it, it kind of reminds me when Andy did his Pock Pock cookbooks, you know, it's like one-stop shopping. I think in Andy's book, he also gave us lists of where you can mail order these Thai ingredients from. If you can't find them, if you, if you don't live in a city like New York or San Francisco or Chicago or whatever, you know, you're living in the middle of Pot, you can still order this stuff and get it. So it's, it's, it's crazy, crazy book. Thanks for being on the show. Abe Conlon was with me. The name of the book is The Adventures of Fat Rice, Recipes from the Chicago Restaurant. Did you ever get to try, when you were at Ping, did you ever get to try his oysters with XO sauce? You say oysters with XO sauce? Yeah, when you were at Ping. Ping has a, Ping makes a great XO sauce, and that's like one of the ways he shows it off in his restaurant. Oh, yeah. No, I, I, I got, I'm coming back in a couple of weeks. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go get some of that. Well, hit me up through Heritage. I'll give you a couple of tips on where to go. Not that you need them in New York City. Not that we're short of, uh, of uh, experts here, but that's what I do for a living, too. Congratulations on the book. It's great. Thanks for coming on the show. Be well. Continued success. Thanks for having me. Take Th- care. Thank you, folks. Michael Lameco's Food Talk Sign Loft will be back next week with more. Take care. Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. 
Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Where to go, baby.